So I'm super excited to be here with you guys this morning. Um, we're going to, this morning, be talking about the Lord's Supper, which we haven't been able to take here at Lakeview since the pandemic started. But let me pray for us really quick before we get started. Father, thank you for today. Um, thank you for the ability that you've given us together together. That, Father, we can come together even with inconveniences like masks and social distancing and all this, but that, Father, you've given us the ability to be here, to study your word, Father, to know you more and to learn to love you more. And Father, I pray that today this lesson would be anything other than just uh, filling us with knowledge or head knowledge about this um, topic, but that, Father, it would help us to see just how wonderful your son is and the life he lived for us. And that, Father, the gospel would just be made more visible to us and that we would rejoice, Father, when we finally do get to take the Lord's Supper together. And I pray all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. So, um, I'm going to ask a question, and I genuinely want you guys to answer. Um, why do you think there are tests in school? Anybody have, like, why do you think so? Okay. Yeah. Any other guesses? <laughs> to torture you. For some teachers, that may be true. <laughs> yeah, I think those are both good answers. Your answer, too. But what I'm going to try to make the case for this morning is that the Lord's Supper is kind of like a heart check for us. Like, you know, test or knowledge checks. They're there to kind of keep you accountable, to make sure that you're trying to learn the material. And, I mean, if we didn't have tests, I know if you guys are anything like I am, I probably wouldn't try to study and learn the material very well. I mean, if I knew that at the end of the day, regardless of how much I retained from the lectures and the teacher, I'd probably just not study. If I was still going to get a passing grade, I'd just take the grade and move on. Um, and the Lord's Supper, I believe, kind of acts in the same way for us as a church. It's something that God's given us to kind of cause us to stop and evaluate where we are as a church and where we are personally. And so everybody, if you would, go with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Before we move on to the next passage, we're going to read them both, and then we're going to kind of bounce around between them as we talk about different components of the Lord's Supper. But I just want to point out how sweet it was. I mean, think about this, that they just did the Lord's Supper for the first time, and then Jesus and his disciples sat around singing hymns, praising God with each other. I don't want to just rush past that and treat it like something small. It's a sweet moment. But all right, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Um, there's some divisions and different issues going on. And he talks about how this particularly is going to relate to the Lord's Supper, that they're supposed to be taken with one another. So thank you guys for reading. But I just want us to think about what are some of the principles, kind of guiding things that we need to think about for the Lord's Supper. Um, and I wish that we were still being able to do this regularly because it kind of give us some context to think about it. But the first thing I want us to really see is that this is something that Jesus commanded his disciples to do. And thus commanded us to do. Paul passed it on from Jesus to Corinth, as you can read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, where he says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on also to you, 
on the night he was betrayed, and Jesus took bread, and then he goes into the instructions. So it was something that Jesus had commanded, Paul had taken it, and then Paul was telling the Corinthian church to do it also. And then 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25, we read, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Right after he had just given the instructions about taking the wine and the symbolism with it, he said, as often as you drink it. There's this kind of sense that he's like, this is something that's going to be happening, a repetitive thing that's going to be going on in the church. So it's not just a one-time event that Jesus did with his disciples and then they don't do it again, but it's something that's going to continually happen. And so, and even just at the most basic level, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians to a church who he is giving instructions about on how to do this. This is something that the church is supposed to be doing together. The second thing I want you to see is that the Lord's Supper is done with bread and wine as the two elements. And these are the the emblems themselves, the bread and the wine. We'll talk about them and what they mean. But the bread... This was something left over from the Passover feast, which, if you remember, the Israelites were in Egypt. They were enslaved. They were being um, used to do uh, manual labor and oppressed. They called out to God and asked him to save them from this situation. And God did the ten plagues on Egypt in order to get the Pharaoh to let him go. Well, the final plague was to kill the firstborn of those who were in Egypt. And In order to be spared from this, in order to be saved, God told his people to take a lamb, kill it, and put the blood over your doorframe. And that God would pass over them. And there were different emblems and elements, and part was to eat unleavened bread during that day. And so this, the bread is this, what they originally took was unleavened bread, and they would take it, eat it, and then they would have wine. And we can even see this in Matthew 26, verse 29, where Jesus says, But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The fruit of the vine, talking about fruit from grapes, the juice that would come from them. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-one, we can see that that's what they were still using because people were showing up and actually getting drunk on it. It was what was supposed to be the Lord's Supper. He says, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. And this meal that was supposed to be something that was in remembrance of Jesus was actually being used as an opportunity for people to show up and be selfish and use it as an opportunity to actually do something sinful and get drunk at it. They weren't remembering Christ as they ought to. And so you may be thinking, okay, well, they used bread and they used wine. And should we use the exact same elements, the exact same things that they were using? Well, if we were going to do that, we would have to use one massive piece of unleavened bread that could be split among all the members of our church, which would be like an insanely large piece of bread. And then I just don't think it's feasible for us to even do that. It would be awesome if we could, and there's the symbolism of us being one body of Christ with that. Um, But I think that what can happen is we get hung up on small details like that where we're looking at the exact representation of the, the things that they used in that time, and we miss the main point. 
which was it, what it was supposed to point us to. The important thing about the Lord's Supper is not the bread and the wine itself, but what it teaches us, what it points us to, what it causes us to remember as Jesus told his disciples. And so what they point us to, what's represented by them? Well, the bread, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, represents the body of Christ. This is my body, which is for you. And we have different accounts of um, Jesus and the Lord's Supper. All the Gospels record it. And Luke says, this is my body, which was broken for you. Um, but how is, it's kind of a weird phrase. This is my body, which is for you. So how do we think about what does that really mean? We have to remember who Christ is. Jesus wasn't someone that just appeared 2,000 years ago in Israel. No. He was the eternal Son of God. He was with the Father and the Spirit before the world was created. He didn't have a body. He was spiritual. Um, and so, in our, when we fell from Him, when we who were created as people with bodies and we rebelled and rejected our God, what Jesus had to do for our sake was to take on a human body for us. He took on flesh to save us. He became one of us to save us. Him taking on a body, him becoming a man was for us. His life of hardship, the trials he endured, the temptations he's faced, all while being perfectly obedient to the Father was for us. And that ultimately culminated in him having to go to the cross to be killed on our behalf. As we have read in Romans, for the wages of sin is death. And that was for us. So when it says that this is his body, which is for us, what we need to remember and what we're trying to remember for that is the life of Christ. Him coming and taking on human flesh for us to save us from our sins. That he had to come and do what none of us had done. That He had to live as a perfect human being in order to be able to look to the Father as he does in John 17 and say, Father, glorify me as I have completed what you have for me on this earth. He did what Adam and what every man was created to do. Every man and woman was created to do the work that God had given them to do, and to do it faithfully. And so when he says, this is my body, which is for you, it's talking about him coming and living in order to save us. And Jesus' cup, representing Jesus' blood, he says, was a symbol of a new covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 45, 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And what Jesus is calling to mind here, again, you would have had with the Passover where they had to kill a lamb and use the blood for them. But what he's also calling to mind is the repetitive sacrifices in the Old Testament. Where in the Old Testament, we are told there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And so he's calling to mind this imagery of, in the Old Testament, the covenant that God had made with Moses and with his people required them to constantly come to the temple and make sacrifices for their sins. To have a, a lamb that would take the punishment their sins deserved. And he's saying and setting it up so that when he gets the next day, lifted up on a cross and killed for his people, 
that they would recognize this as him being the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. That we don't have to go every year now to a temple and make sacrifices. Because the one perfect son of God made the one final decisive sacrifice on all of our behalves. And that his blood now cleanses all of his people from sins from that point that they put their faith in him and forevermore. It's not a, a something that needs to be renewed and done again and again. No, his people are saved from the point in which they come to be with him until the end of time. And so Jesus points them to his body. Remember this. Remember that I came and took on human flesh so that I can make you one with God. And then he takes the cup. He says, remember this, that my blood was spilled for you. And it cleanses you from your sins. And you can now be one with God again like you used to could not be. And so it's a, it's a confession of the gospel. Taking the Lord's Supper. It's a reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And he's pointing us to remember all of that. And then my third point is this. The Lord's Supper is for true disciples of Christ. This is made all clear all over 1 Corinthians. But I just want to ask you, just kind of thinking about it, why would this only be for believers? If it was just memorized or remembering something, like a, just recalling a fact, that wouldn't be very controversial, but it means so much more than just remembering. Um, in verse Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus says, For this is the blood of my or this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, the point of this supper is celebrating that our sins are forgiven in Christ. And we're told to do this, to remember that. It's not just a, it's a confessional thing. It's a convictional thing. That someone who is doing this is saying and declaring to the people around them, I have placed my hope in Jesus He's my hope of salvation. He's the one who cleanses me from my sins. I had nothing to offer God. In fact, all of my best works were filthy rags before him. But Jesus makes me a son of God. Jesus saves me from my sins. And so it would be a mockery of that if people who were not truly born again were taking of it. They would be professing something in that moment before others that they themselves don't actually profess. And so it's also because it's for those who are going to take this again one day in the future with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, 29 says, But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's this forward-looking aspect, this hope, that we don't just take it now as a church and that's the end of it. But that there's going to come a day when we again will be with our Savior, we will be with Jesus in His Father's kingdom and we'll be able to celebrate and remember His sacrifice on our behalf to worship Him and praise Him for that. And then it's also called to recognize the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine says, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
And I believe that Paul here has kind of a double meaning when he's saying the body of Christ. So the one part of it is the actual body of Christ, as we've talked about up until this point. Him living as a man for us. But it's also, I believe, pointing to the church. And why do I think that? Kind of seems like it may be a jump. But if we look immediately after what he, we just read about eating and drinking without remembering the church or recognizing the body, what we see is the way that Paul applies that is then to tell them how they're supposed to treat one another while they're taking the Lord's Supper. It has implications for how we um, accept one another and we commune with one another. As the Lord's Supper is often called, we take communion. It's a coming together of the body of Christ, those who have put their hope in Christ, those who commonly among themselves profess what the supper actually points us to. And then the very next chapter, after what we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul actually picks up this analogy of the church being the body of Christ and uses it to talk about the spiritual gifts and how the church of Christ, the body of Christ, is composed of many parts, but it's all one body. So I don't think it's a stretch at all from this passage to say that Paul is intending kind of a double meaning here. That we remember the work of Christ on our behalf, but we also remember the immediate practical effect that it had of making a united body of believers in a church. So the body, they're those who believe in him, who confess this with one another. And so final point with this is that the Lord's Supper is for church members. In um, chapter 11, verse 18, he speaks about this supper being taken as the church is coming together. When he says, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there's a very um, practical application of this is that This is the believers who are coming together with each other. You're supposed to be sharing this meal and remembering each other and remembering the Savior who's united them. It's coming together physically, actually being present with one another, sharing a meal with each other. Um, So I think that we can realize from that that this is not for gatherings which are not the church. You know, sometimes we have people who take communion Um, at their wedding, or at some kind of celebration. And I don't think that those people are sinful in doing so. I think that the appropriate place for the communion to be celebrated is with a body of believers, with a church, where the members of the church are all professing with one another that our hope is in Christ alone, that we remember his work on our behalf. And that's how we believe that we are saved. And so it's for the church, not other gatherings. And then they're also coming together, not just physically, but spiritually in unity with Christ. When he says in chapter 11, verse 33, Therefore we, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. It wouldn't do for Paul, and that's what he's writing to the Corinthians to address, it wouldn't do just to be together physically. He's talking about the Corinthians who, they're together physically in some ways, but they're also very divided with one another. 
And he's saying we have one hope, one Savior that we remember during the supper, one source of confidence, one source of boasting, one person who is supposed to be the leader of us all, and that is Christ. And so if we, as his people, are coming together, and yet we're doing so in a way in which we're divided and we're excluding one another, then we're not doing it right. We're not actually truly confessing what we're supposed to be. And that is that Christ makes us one. And this is important. That we maintain that those who are truly going to be taken of the Lord's Supper are also united with the body of believers. And it doesn't particularly mean that they're united with us. Lakeview's stance is that baptized believers in good standing with the church are able to take the Lord's Supper with us. And baptism is linked with that because baptism, as you guys would have studied last week, it's the entry point into the church. Baptism and the church are not separate from one another. The, a Christian without a church also around him is an anomaly, an enigma in the New Testament. It's not something that's supposed to be normal. You know, it's very common, I feel like, I hear people talk about, you know, I can be a Christian without the church. And I don't think that that's impossible. I do think that we're setting ourselves up for something very detrimental. Because the hope of the gospel is not just that you personally get your salvation, but it's then that you're grafted into the family of God and you're incorporated into this hope that we share in common so that we can encourage one another and spur one another on to good deeds and good works and to be faithful to God. And so baptism is a way that we are grafted into that body. We are baptized, and then we come in as members. And so baptism is linked with this. And for some of you who may have friends who are Presbyterian, who baptize infants, you may ask, okay, well, how do we think about that? Those who are baptized as infants um, taking communion with us. And the position at Lakeview is that that baptism it's not the baptism that's commanded by the New Testament. Baptism in the New Testament, believer's baptism, it is always connected with a profession that you truly are placing your faith in Christ. And infants can't do that. As sweet and as precious as they are, they can't put their faith in Christ at that young of an age and profess that and make a public statement that baptism is. And then Paul, as a consequence of this, urges, his, um, urges the Corinthians to make sure that they're examining themselves and looking to, see if they're, to make sure that they're not coming to the Lord's Supper in a way that is wrong. And so starting in verse 27, he says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But we are judged by the Lord. When we are, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. This is where I, at the beginning, said that I believe that the Lord's Supper is kind of a heart check for us. 
hearts and in light of all that we have talked about, that it's commanded by the Lord, that it's for true believers, that it's for those who are believers, who are um, church members. And then the elements and what we're supposed to remember with it, with the bread and the wine pointing us to the life of Christ. Paul warns them, this isn't something to just do lightly. This isn't something that you come in to take and you don't think about the way in which you're doing it. It's a heart check. Kind of like how you, when you know the date of your test and you know that at that date I'm going to be tested and examined and if I do bad, there's going to be consequences. And so I want to be prepared for it. It's the same way with the Lord's Supper. It's just why it's important for us to regularly take the Lord's Supper together and so that we have a point in time where we know When I come to the Lord's Supper, I need to do so in a manner that's worthy of it. That's honoring of Christ. Without division. In an unworthy manner, what does Paul really mean by that? I mean, if you look at the Corinthians, it was they were showing up and getting drunk at it. I mean, they were not united with one another. They were excluding each other. And I while we may not show up on Sunday morning and really have a problem worrying about people showing up drunk to take the Lord's Supper here. What we do is a lot of times we may harbor sins in our life. We may have things that we know are wrong, that we shouldn't be partaking in, and yet we're consistently choosing to. We're not confessing it to God. We're not repenting of it. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, it's a time that's set so that we know I need to be right with God when I go into this. I need to come to him and to confess these things. I need to be ready for it. And so I want us to look at um, a couple of things that we should do when we're thinking about coming to take the Lord's Supper. So the first thing is we need to do self-examination. Now, this isn't something you do just the minute before the Lord's Supper is taken. Just like you don't try to cram for a calculus test the minute before the test is given. You want to be preparing in advance, knowing, okay, I'm going to be taking the Lord's Supper on this day. God, say like the psalmist David did, Lord, search my heart. See if there is any evil way within me. We need to be looking and searching our hearts to see if there's sin in our lives that we're harboring and that we're not willing to let go of. You know, a lot of times God will reveal things to us. Um. As a Christian, we're called to hold our lives kind of in open hands with God. That He can take things out of our hands how He wills, and He can put them in our hands as He wills. To give us what He wants for our lives. Whether it be your grades, your friends, your relationships, your job, your car, whatever it is. That we ultimately are entrusting it to God. That these are His things. He's given them to us for a while, and we can ultimately we're going to trust Him. And like Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord that we trust Him with those things. That if He deems that we should have it, then we rejoice. And if He takes it away, then we still praise His name. And sometimes what God does is He starts to take something away from us that we don't really realize we're holding on with really a closed fist. And so when God starts to try to pull it away from us, it jars us. And we start to pull back. And those are moments that we're supposed to stop and realize what we're doing. That we're not trusting Him to release them. 
I trust him with whatever he takes or gives to us. And it's the same way with sin or whatever else is in our lives. That when we're coming to the Lord's Supper, it's, a mom- it's something set for us to stop and beforehand start examining our hearts and see if there are ways that we're not trusting God, that the gospel is not infecting every part of our life so that we can confess those things and be restored to God so that when we do take the Lord's Supper, it's truly a confession, not just outwardly, but one that's active in our hearts at that time too. The second thing is to remember the work of Christ. You know, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's something that we're doing to remember his work on our behalf. I know when I talk about the first thing is for us to examine ourselves and to repent of sins, and that can be intimidating. And that can make it seem like sometimes the response can be, I need to make myself better and then go to God. And that's not at all what I'm saying. Our response is to recognize the things that are separating us from God and then to run to Him, to cling to Him. The work of Christ on your behalf, the gospel, is that we couldn't make ourselves right and that Jesus had to come and become one of us to save us from what we had done and that our only hope from the first time that we put our faith in Him and were converted throughout the rest of our Christian life It is constantly us coming back to him and relying on his grace. It's it's a constant life of humbling ourselves and saying, Father, I have sinned against you in this way. Please forgive me. And then cause your spirit to empower me and help me to walk faithfully to you. This is not a call for you to somehow become better than you are. The The Lord's Supper is a reminder that we come to God broken and helpless and that He's the one that restores us to Himself. When we rely on Him, when we cry out for mercy, He brings us to Himself. And so if you do have sin in your life, know that your answer is to seek your Father to be restored to Him and that He will empower you and equip you and help you to walk faithfully with Him. And so the third thing I just just spoke about is confession and repentance. It's going to him and just confessing your sins to him. I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I was writing and I was thinking about how I'd really been struggling in my prayer life. Just not spending very much time at all praying. And it was a problem. And the problem also was that I honestly didn't really feel like doing it. I didn't really have a desire in my heart to pray. And my kind of gut response is, well, I need to do something to make my desire, you know, amp up. Like, I need to make myself want to pray more. And then I'll be able to, like, pray more. And I just remembered, I can't do that. My heart's sinful. And the gospel tells me that I'm dependent upon Jesus to save me from that. So I just went to my went to the Father and said, Father, I am, I don't, I'm not praying and I don't even want to pray. Confessed it to him. I said, Father, but I want you to change me, to help me to pray with you more, to grow me in this and help me to be more faithful in that. Genuinely desiring to change my ways, that's repentance. And 
trusting him that he's going to carry that out. And he's going to help me to become more faithful in that. That's what we're called to. We're all called to be beggars who are pointing each other to where we can go get food. I'm just one beggar telling you, other beggars, where the food is. And we go there. And then the fourth thing is that we're to seek unity. We cannot confess outwardly that we are believers in Christ, that we trust Him if inside and with other believers in the church we're divided. John chapter 17 says, Father, may they be one so that the world know you have sent me. All throughout John 17, the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays right before he goes to the cross it is a prayer calling for the believers to be united with one another. And our unity with each other, whether or not there are divisions among us, is a testament to whether or not we're truly finding our only hope in Jesus or whether we're still trying to find our own hope in our own works, in our own standards, in what we want and what we believe. And so we have to examine ourselves and see, are there brothers and sisters in this room that you won't speak to? Are there people in this church that you don't want to be even associated with who are believers? Who are members of this church who have been affirmed by the elders that they are believers? Are the pastors and the deacons? Are these people who you have seen, I need to be restored to them. They've placed their hope in Christ. I've placed my hope in Christ. But we still aren't united with each other. Because if that's the case, then brothers and sisters, it is an opportunity for you to go to that person that you're not united with and to see that God, who restored the relationship between God and man, which had far more problems than between you and the person you're at odds with, that he still brings healing and still brings unity and still brings restoration to those who are placing their only hope in Christ. You know, it's interesting, Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples throughout the Gospels, there are times that he says, if you have offended someone else, or if you have done something wrong to someone else, go to them. There are other times he says, if someone else has done something wrong against you, go to them. The important thing is not who the offender is and who the offended is. The important thing is that we are one in Christ and we need to seek to be reconciled with each other and seek unity and seek restoration so that we may proclaim Christ and proclaim his gospel wholeheartedly. And that includes when we take the Lord's Supper. And the final thing is we get to look forward to the return of our King. I mean, it's so easy to look around our world right now and see just how messed up it is. That there are so many worries and anxieties and things that are just pressing down on everyone. But there's a day when that's coming to an end. There's going to be a day where there is no more sickness. There's no more war. There's no more hatred. There's going to be a day that because of the work of Christ on our behalf, we will be one with him. And there will not be a single kingdom in this earth other than his. And every knee will bow before him. 
And so we get to worship and praise and know that this message that we proclaim as we take the Lord's Supper, it's the same message we're going to be singing in heaven, that Jesus is worthy, that Jesus saves, that Jesus takes a people for himself and brings them together, and that all the effects of sin that divide us and cause us to reject one another and hate one another are going to be completely expelled from us, and we're going to be one with our Savior. That's why we get to look forward to taking this meal with him, the Lord's Supper. It's not a small ordeal. It's a heart check for us as a church to stop. And when we take the Lord's Supper, to say, Father, search me. May you make everything within me proclaim and confess and say exactly what we say and proclaim and confess when we're taking this meal.